Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets show. I am John Human. I am the editor of the Investors Chronicle. I am joined today by Bradley Gerrard. How are you doing, Bradley? I'm very good. Thank you, John. Good. Uh, Stephen Wilmot. Hi, John. How are you? Very well. Good. And over in the control room, we have Algie Hall. Hi, John. How are you doing, Algie? Yeah, top form, thanks. Good. And, uh, and Dom Toms, manning the desk. How are you, Dom? Excellent. Good. Right. So I've been away for two weeks now. Actually, I think the last time I was on the podcast, I said I was going to be back next week, and uh, I'd forgotten I'd actually booked another couple of days <laughs> off for my birthday. Um, turned, Congratulations. I yeah, turned, happy birthday. Thanks. I turned 40, so... Uh, big one. Yeah, it was a big one, but, uh, you know, obviously look very much younger in my picture, so... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Readers would be unaware. Absolutely. Um, you've, you turned 40 as well this year, didn't you, LG? Uh Yeah, yeah, no, I've um, I've already bitten the bullet. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Okay. yeah, so anyway, we're, we're all getting old. Um and what a lot of fun we're having. Um, so, we've been away for two weeks, and uh, what's been happening? Bradley, what's been happening? Throw me at the deep end. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, lots has been happening, but let's, let's stick to this week. Um, I suppose, obviously, today is the day that the US Federal Reserve might or might not raise rates. Um, before I came down here to record the podcast, um, there was a little note from Jim Levis over at M&G, much regarded bond team who says the market's only pricing in a 30% chance of there being a rate rise. So. Yeah, that, that, that percentage uh, probability seems to have been falling uh, over the last few weeks. So I yeah, so I mean... It was kind of 50-50 when I went away. And, yeah, uh, I think there's there's been a, a, the dual pressures are, I suppose, of... Well, it, there are internal pressures that show the US economy is performing very well. And there was some data um, actually out today, um, things like jobless claims fell, people claiming benefits fell to a 15-year low to 2.23 million. So there are lots of things um, you know, domestically in the US that are very positive. But, um, but it's not all about the US. It's not all about the US, as we well know, no. Um, external pressures, you know, issues in emerging markets, etc. I think allow the US to pause on pushing the rate rise button, so to speak. Mm. Which uh, some might say they wanted all along. Well, perhaps, and you could argue it's a convenient uh, uh, happening that you know there are crises in other countries that the US can just say, well, you know, the global economy is a bit uncertain, so we'll maybe just hang fire for now. But um, in spite of that, obviously, another thing we mentioned in seven days is um, Mr. Robert Schiller, who um, is a very well-known economist, and um, he uh, created the CAPE ratio, yep. the cyclically adjusted PE ratio. Yeah, we like that. Yeah, and um, he is citing um, in a recent comments to the FT um, that he thinks US stocks could be in a bear market. So I suppose maybe that might f- factor into the rate rise decision as well. You know, markets might either take it as a bullish sign or a bearish one, and it is it is quite binary. Maybe it shouldn't be, but yeah, he he has been. Obviously, banging the stocks overvalued jump for a long time. That is true. It's kind of his drum. (laughs) But he he said something very interesting a couple of months ago, I thought, which was that um, it's not overconfidence that's boosting markets, as you would expect at the top of a bull market. It's fear that's driving markets higher because it's the low interest rate and nervousness going into kind of developed market stocks. And so I thought that was a very interesting observation. Sort of. So so fear is making people buy risky assets. I guess because they think that central banks will step in. That's how the markets have worked the past couple yeah. of years. Yeah. If there's a worry, yeah. then actually markets rally because they think, oh, Draghi or Yellen or whoever will just step in Easy. and plough some dollars or yen or euros. Well, indeed. I mean, yeah, so the Euro, uh, European shares bounced when uh, when there was a bit of QE uh, or plans for more QE announced there. Same happens in Japan. Uh, same happened in China when they announced more stimulus in the last couple of weeks. So, yeah, it's, I, I 
I think there's a lot of uh, lot to be said for that particular yep. argument. Yeah, and, and I noticed in the seven day section we've we've got a lot of uh, what what appears to be bad news from uh, from emerging markets and uh, some of the weaker economies in Europe. Here, I mean it. it it's a gloomy page this week, Bradley. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, I was obviously a bit downbeat or something. But um, yeah, I mean, um, Standard & Poor's has had its um, bow and arrow out, that's for sure, this week. It's cut um, Brazil's investment-grade debt rating. So now Brazil is junk, according to S&P. Yeah. Um, it also cut uh, Japan's credit rating too. So um, not just emerging market economies under pressure there. But yeah, S&P cutting some ratings, which is obviously very interesting. I mean, for, for Japan, it has less of an impact because it's bonds are so well supported but for brazil it could be quite important because it will likely raise the um amount that they have to pay people who lend the money which um for a com- um, an economy in that's struggling is potentially a bad thing indeed china's looking a bit uh a bit wobbly as well still yeah um it is um the bank of america merrill lynch uh, fund manager survey um it's a well-respected survey it uh, gauges the sort of fears and um, hopes of uh, lots of pension hedge and mutual fund houses and yeah, China has emerged as one of the biggest tail risks, which is perhaps not surprising given what's happened in the past few weeks. But I guess what the survey kind of suggests is that maybe that isn't going to go away kind of thing. Maybe that's the thing that the survey is really saying. Yeah. Tail risk. A bloody big tail. Well, yeah, yeah. Huge dragon sized <laughs> tail maybe. But yeah. Okay, let's move on to some uh, companies in the news. And I guess the big uh, news this week is uh, it's M&A again. So mm. uh, we look at insurance and yeah. obviously Amlin succumbed to a bid from a Japanese company, much yeah. like ourselves, <laughs> yeah, as I predicted a few weeks ago, in fact, in my editorial. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, insurance, what's going on? Well, yeah, the, I mean, Amlin is the third of the Lloyds insurer in insurers in not very long in a, maybe the past year is it mm. to have a to, to, to be bought off the exchange basically and I, I rather like uh, our colleague Jonas's introduction once a magnificent seven it's now the not so magnificent four because yeah basically Amlin um, follows Brit insurance which was private if, if if readers remember and then went went public again a couple of years ago but now it's been bought off the exchange it didn't, so it didn't last very long yeah, it didn't last very long <laughs> exactly and then Catlin um, which was bought bought by a US um, listed insurance company um, so yeah it's be foreign capital has basically been hoovering up these Lloyd's insurers and I, I guess that reflects the fact it's a global market for a start it's it's all I mean it's 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 iconically London in a way with the uh, the old Lloyd's um, building on Leadenhall Street but then it, but it's also a very global market and um, you've got a lot of uh, global companies around there and I, I guess uh, you know some some more global companies want to be in in on in on the action and there were actually quite a lot of independent UK players so it's perhaps not so surprising I mean the the, 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 the big question it raises is obviously is who is next I mean our former banking and insurance guy John Adams who who, who left in in February but he left us with actually um, quite a, two tips in the sector Lancashire and Nove both of which have been performing very well Mainly because of these M and A hopes. Mm, Funny enough, I, they I'm haven't. Sure, Lancashire was M and A hopes were one of the reasons for the tip. Uh, they were, they were the hopes for. I mean, Algae is probably better place to. Um, yeah, no, I mean that, that that's right. I mean, what, what what you've got also there's just so much money because there haven't been any big payouts by these insurers for a long time. So and there've also been other people moving into the market um, who weren't traditionally there. So you've just got a lot of capital and people are looking at ways of spending it. And they're huge dividends because there's all this capital washing around. 
and then there also there's also these acquisitions happening. In um, actually, it's a sector where acquisitions have been considered to be notoriously hard because it's uh, they're people businesses and the people can just up and leave. But um, Lancashire Novi, I mean, they, they're small, you know, they're decent. Um, Novi's been increasing its um, the quality of its operations for a number of years, so um, they, they they look like the next potential targets. But I mean. You could have, when you haven't had any catastrophes for this long, you have to start asking yourself, well, you know, these things happen. You know, maybe we're in for a run of them or something. I mean, it's a very unpredictable sector. So yeah, um, It's a bit of an odd one, isn't it? That, you know, rates are, because of this, as you say, these sectors are awash with capital, with, you know, hedge funds, pension funds and so forth, all wanting to compete in this space. It, it's a bit odd. And so rates are under pressure as everyone is bidding, you know, bidding them down. Um, it's a bit odd in a way that, you know, there's so much interest in, in buying up these companies. Yeah, no, I mean, they're definitely at a kind of fairly unfavourable point in the cycle as um, far as the ability to actually make profits on their um, their activities. On new go. Yeah, because the rates mm. are coming down. But I guess you must, you have to look in the, lo- um, in, in the long term, I suppose, if you're in, in this kind of business, because you know there is a cat- um, catastrophe waiting to happen, does, does unfortunately. Scale, does, they, they just happen. Does so. scale help when uh, rates are, are trending downwards then? I guess that has to be part of the the consolidation story. Yeah. They think they, they they can you know get in better, better negotiation negotiating position if they have more people in their sales team. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so uh, as as you said, Lancashire and Novae still on buys, are they? I presume yes, still on buys? definitely. Because yeah. um, we think the chance of M and A further M and A in this sector are probably quite high. Well, and meanwhile, you're paid very well to wait, even if it doesn't happen. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. there you go. And uh, we've got an insurer set to join the market as well, I notice Hastings, which is in the motor insurance business. Yeah, um, it's a fairly, not a really small company. It's growing its market share, but it's um, largely, um, its largest um, investor is a Goldman Sachs um, vehicle, basically. And so part of Hastings will now be listed on the stock market, which kind of obviously gives um, you know people, including our readers, the chance to um, invest in the company. Um, again, so talking about premiums, I mean, car insurance is a notoriously aggressively competitive sector. The thing which perhaps separates Hastings apart from its rivals is the fact that apparently it does very well on the sort of comparison websites, which is probably one of the main ways that people buy their car insurance now. So, And one of the reasons premiums are so... So under pressure, of course, yeah. Mm. But I suppose if they are under pressure, at least be on, yeah, be on, you know, be on the places, you know, be the most popular on the places they are under pressure. If that mm. makes sense, mm. so that seems to be it's kind of. And I guess uh, there is a positive story in as far as people are driving with the lower petrol price. People are driving more. I mean, that's something what we've um, yeah. talked about. Said man, the results section. Yeah, um, does that really happen? If we look at you know ten p on the price of a gallon of petrol on the on the pump and go oh, do you know what i'm gonna go out for a drive <laughs> <laughs> well, well i think it's a question it's a question of taking cars opposed to train or mm. um i mean you know we had another new another new listing which was a couple of months ago but a company called apple green it's okay. an irish forecourt retailer uh, so yes it, i saw the results this yeah week. exactly they had they you know we, we've covered their results for the first time and they they they, they are they've effectively floated on the back of the story i mean not just that but you know, they've also have an expansion plan, which uh, you know, there's a sort of familiar retail rollout story behind it as well. But you know, one of the the their, their, the tailwinds effectively is people driving a bit more. Okay, let's let's talk retail. 
because uh, they've dominated the results section this week, and mm. we had a little chat about this earlier. Yeah, but yeah, so I mean, you know, we what we what we're essentially saying was the the retail sector uh, is in the doldrum somewhat, which is which is somewhat at odds with the view we have of the UK's economic recovery. But one segment that's doing very well is is automotive retail. So I can I can see why that might happen. People get a nice new car and then think they're going to go for a drive. But uh, <laughs> so so yeah, I mean, some of the retailers we've seen this week in fashion and sort of homewares, it's, it's a bit of a mixed picture, really. Yeah, it is. It is an odd one. I mean, I think one thing that has to be said is that the housing market didn't do very well in the first half. Um, so, you know, house price inflation has been moderating quite substantially, and vol- the volume of housing transactions has fallen quite substantially in the first half. Um, and the, the, but it's expected to pick up again. So this could be a temporary, a temporary thing. Um, but it did mean that I mean that might explain, for example, why why home retail um, had a pretty dismal trading statement um, that was mainly argos wasn't it argos was having yeah exactly a, a and argos had been doing very well i mean i don't know if you, you algae you're, you're probably pretty uh, more in tune with this one but yeah they the, the, apparently tablets as, as have been a uh, have been going out of fashion almost well this this uh, makes sense this ties in with one of the news stories that imagination because uh you know we did have this this massive boom in uh gadgets and tablet consumption tablet consumption think, smartphones yeah. and that does seem to be moderating you know maybe that that's having a bit of a cyclical lull at the moment but imagination had some pretty nasty figures this week yeah it did which is it's, a chip maker yes yeah exactly it makes chips for um companies um including apple and other electronic giants um it basically issued a, a warning um that the three-month period at the end of June will be you know, weaker, largely because of sales into China and other emerging economies. So, um, yeah, I mean, it ties into exactly what you were, you were talking about, mm. that kind of you know, emerging markets downturn is kind of hitting companies that are listed here but geared into that cycle. But also the technology cycle perhaps is... You know, we, we're at one of those points where people just simply aren't rushing out buying new new phones and, and yeah, perhaps they're just, that they were a year ago. They're just bored of the new, you know, whatever it is. Though uh, Apple's going to come out with its latest... Uh, Offering well, quite they, soon, but so. people wait, don't they? Yeah, so it, it they might wait yeah, for exactly the new, the new yeah. product. So yeah. you know, it does have a have an effect. Uh, but actually, funny, one of the interesting things about the retail sector in the past week is was the the contrast between home retail's rather um, dismal update and Dixon's Carphone having a very strong update and citing you know the UK electricals market as being particularly strong. So it might not be so much a or macro thing, but a, a market share issue where Argos just isn't doing very well compared to. Dixon's car phone for whatever yeah. reason. Retailers so. do have a habit of blaming everyone <laughs> for them, but themselves for the problems that they face. It's usually the weather, but uh, I guess if you're an electrical retailer, it's hard to blame the weather for anything. I think so. Really, but next next looked okay. Um, yeah, next uh, next has been doing solidly. I mean, uh, as you'd expect, I mean, the most interesting thing about the next results, as I as I discussed in the taking stock column, was the the discussion of how the the living wage, this uh, new minimum wage, which was announced by um, the Chancellor in, in July, in the July budget, how that's going to affect them. And because there, there, there are three sectors, I mean, actually, there was an interesting report out from the Resolution Foundation a couple of days ago, and it singled out three sectors which would be disproportionately affected by the, the living wage, that support services, hospitality, and retail. But I think retail looks the most, I mean, certainly judging by next statement, which, which was very full, you know, it dedicated three pages to kind of going through all of its modelling for this. And it, it, it seemed quite convincing that it wasn't actually going to affect them that much. So I'd say hospitality and support services probably affected a bit more than retail. Um, but, I mean, which makes sense because I think Nex said that um, UK wages were about 15% of its costs. Um, so the goods that it sells are not made purely out of the 
people's wages in the way that they are often actually are in in support services where you're actually the, yeah. the, the service you're buying is mainly about service um that's not the case in retail you you know so so anyway so i think you know next said it was going to add 27 million to its wage bill over on top of general wage inflation by 2020 it's a big number um which is a, which is a big number but it only needs to increase prices by one percent over that you know four-year period in order to make that up so it can probably do that pretty pretty easily yeah except we know that uh they're, they're kind of in, retailers importing deflation i mean we know that mm. you know the price of the price of uh manufacturing and shipping uh, from emerging market manufacturing bases is not exactly rising quickly mm, yeah i mean uh, i guess obviously the, the, one, the one thing that they all have in favor of them is that ev- this has been applied across the whole market so everyone is affected equally by the the, the minimum wage so there isn't there isn't the um you know, if if they all increase their prices, I mean, it could be that that just kickstarts inflation, and that that might be one of the things that the the chancellor had in mind actually when he made his announcement. I and mean, I think it's quite you know, there's been this big political battle about you know w- w- wage growth, and there you know, there being lots of low the jobs numbers being pretty strong, but the wage numbers not being very strong. And actually, that's just beginning to change as he makes his announcement. So it could be that he ends up sort of taking credit for something that was that was happening anyway, which is wage growth. He's good at that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you say you say it would affect everyone equally, but um, I mean, in your taking stock column, mm. you kind of uh, allude to the fact that actually some companies are more exposed than others. Mighty is one that you, you yeah. So, and in fact, we we yeah. tipped that as a sell tip a few weeks back. Yeah, uh, very much on the basis of the uh, the, the wage increase. Yeah, that that was through. that was one of the bare points. Yeah. Um. So yeah, Mighty. Why, yeah. No. Why well, is it so much worse for Mighty potentially than than say next? Um. Well, I, I think it comes down to this point about what they're offering is made up mainly of the wages of the people who are yeah. doing the service. Well, but I mean, how are they worse affected than, say, other outsourcers? Oh, well, they have a particularly low average wage per staff. So right. Librium, um, the stockbroking company, did this analysis where it estimated, you know, obviously just took its wage bill and divided by the number of employees that it has, and it came up with a figure of £16,400, which was the lowest of all of the... Right. It's outsourcers, so that would suggest just on that. I mean, it's a simplistic analysis, but if you, but you know, it should be pretty accurate, and that suggests that a lot of those are on the current minimum wage, which means that it will be most exposed to an increase in that minimum wage. Another another consideration with Mighty is that it's a blue collar outsourcer, which means the it's low low skilled work, low margin um, margins on the contracts it does. Unlike companies which do more business process outsourcing, they call it, where they can charge a higher margin, kind of more skilled work. So not only does it have more low paid workers, but the margin damage that could be done is more significant because you're starting from a low base. Okay, sounds like a good reason to sell those shares. (laughs) And that they should be able to offset the um, effect after a while by renegotiating contracts. I mean, I think that's one thing that they've flagged but there's always this lag between um you know having to take the hit and then renegotiating the the contract and obviously it will depend what everyone else is bidding as well so yeah uh, yeah uh weatherspoon were angry they're always angry about something (laughs) (laughs) he's always an entertaining uh (laughs) yeah tim martin the chairman of weatherspoons always always so he's usually usually angry about supermarkets isn't he yeah supermarket booze prices yeah so his perennial complaint is that supermarkets booze are so much cheaper in supermarkets and that pubs are closing because of people are buying booze in supermarkets um and that effectively supermarkets use their use alcohol as a loss leader 
and obviously you know all of the hot air that he um um exudes in just about every statement uh, goes go somewhere because there has been sort of some political talk about putting on minimum prices on the supermarket alcohol and this kind of stuff but anyway yeah he he, he thinks that the the living wage will will exacerbate this problem because basically because the staff costs are about 30 percent of the price of a pint whereas obviously they're a much smaller proportion of the price of a supermarket pint Thirty um, percent at the price of a pint. Yeah, is the the staff the, the the cost you pay for the guy behind the bar? Seems very high. Um, <laughs> Obviously, he thinks so as well. You should join Weatherspoons. <laughs> um, yeah, but anyway, well, their prices yeah. are very cheap. I suppose in Weatherspoons. Um, yeah, he's trying to suppose that's the problem. Is if the if the pints are cheap, the wages are cheap. So yeah. coming back to living wage. <laughs> We've got a new Weatherspoon in my town. I haven't been in it yet. It looks very nice, but it is a Weatherspoon. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so supermarket booze is obviously uh, his bugbear. Now he's got something else to moan about as well. Excellent. Morrison's, while we're talking supermarkets, yeah, ter- uh, pretty results. shocking. Yeah. So yeah. The, the new man, his uh, new broom, not, yep. not quite doing the job yet. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, it was a sort of kitchen sink job. There were lo- lots of write downs on their property portfolio, or rather the future pipeline of property. Um, of, of, of supermarket developments that now won't happen. I think he's going to... Because they're closing stores now rather than opening. Yeah, and stores that haven't been opened for very long. No, the convenience we, chain... We talked about this before, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, I mean, it's shocking. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> I mean, they only, they only opened it a couple of... You know, what is it, 18 months ago? I can't... And who knew Morrison's had convenience chains? I didn't. They have got one in my town. Maybe not for very long. No, no well, the same. It's the no, worst, they, they it's the worst they, supermarket in town. They've, they've sold all but a very few of them. I can't quite remember, but to a guy who... Uh, who wants to make a stab of an independent convenience chain? Um, so they will be, yeah, stop being M local and stop being something else. Okay, look forward. But it's to taken; it. it's had to take a loss on that, um, a write down on that investment. Yes, so, yes, um, indeed. It's um, a it's a good example of poor management, really, over the past. Yeah, <laughs> several actually, years. actually, uh, Bearball in his column this week, we, we actually picked it out as a quote, because I think this is uh, this is very, very much uh, worth remembering. He says, uh, Amortising acquired intangible assets is a real cost for a company. To ignore it is to accept a distorted picture of profits, which leads to distorted judgment. And we're, you know, we're kind of, we often think, oh, you know, write downs, whatever. We strip them out and we talk about underlying profits. Mm. But this is real money that's been lost. Yeah, real the- money that's been ploughed into investments, which is now worthless essentially so i i agree with with bearball there um we we actually report we report the reported figures in the tables in uh in the magazine mm, and this is a good reason Walks why we should and it's yeah. a good reason why we should because uh yeah getting that that's if you know you see a lumpy business that's had lots of write downs over the years i think it does ring a a certain alarm bell mm. there you go okay um anything else on the results front jd looked good uh kingfisher still working yeah, JD, jd's going um, absolutely Great guns. Yeah, Jade, uh, Kingfisher. Yeah, Kingfisher. Um, uh, yeah, um, doing not too badly. I mean, uh, the relatively new chief executive, uh, Veronique Lowry. I yeah. hope I've said your name correctly, Veronique. Don't worry, we, we always get it wrong. And Stephen corrects us. Fair enough. That That's true. Perfect. Yeah, good. <laughs> German anyway. It's very good German. Um, but no, the it's um, I suppose you know to use some uh, personal analogies, it's knocking down some walls at B and Q and getting rid of quite a few stores there. But Screwfix is the darling among the group. Um, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, they've got about four hundred and twelve. I think it was from memory stores now that are aiming to reach 600 in the coming years um the difference i suppose is Screwfix serves the specialist trade so it's um it's still geared into that sort of diy thing but you're not doing it yourself you're getting someone else to do it for you i shop in Screwfix. do you yeah are you like a tradesman no 
Do you have No, I just know that I'm getting ripped off if I go B and Q. Maybe that's why Screwfix is doing so well then. People like you have figured out that B and Q is more expensive. Yeah, yeah. My dad I have my dad to thank for that one. Ah, I see, so, I see, uh, I see. There we go. Yeah, when I mean, you do have to go into the sort of uh, you know, back end of an industrial estate somewhere to find their their little warehouse. Well I think it's usually probably tucked the, away in the corner somewhere. That's probably so. gonna change because they're opening so many more stores. I, I think be, they, they want to be in the right locations, you know. I, yeah, but I think that they are the right locations, you know. Yeah, yeah. And they're sure. cheap, I guess, is more, more important. So it's an interesting model. I think that's a very sensible move. Good stuff, Kingfisher. We we haven't moved to, to a buy yet. I guess we're waiting to see. Yeah, I mean I think just then. you know the the new management team has been in place less or about a year, slightly less than that really. And you just think with so much going on there's potential for more capex needed than they're predicting um their overseas expansion excluding the obvious like france which is a, a big part of the business but their other sort of more um exploratory overseas expansion is is not going in the straightest line so you just kind of think well there are some very good positive trends there mm. but at the same time there's some reason to be cautious and and sit back and wait a bit i think yeah they pulled out of china as well I yeah exactly yeah they saw the jv at a profit yeah, which is something, so I suppose. That's how, you, that's how you do it, Boris. So, yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe that would be a, a key thing that we look at in, in the future. But then, yeah, they've, they've chosen to come out of China, sold their joint venture. So, you know, yeah, I think that was probably a sensible decision, but at the same time, scaling down. Yeah, there are reasons to be, uh, if you've got them, then hold them, basically. Okay. All right, let's uh, let's move on now to the cover feature, which is uh, what you uh, did for us this week, Algie, amongst yes. other things. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, seven... Golden ratios? Seven sure golden I, ratios. I'm sure I counted one or two more than that. But, uh, <laughs> um, it fits nicely with the cover artwork, so uh, we'll call it seven. So um, these are, so you've gone out, you spoke to some, some top fund managers to identify the fundamental analysis, the ratios, the formula they use when they're picking their investments. So talk, talk us through what, what you found out. Something I'm always very interested in is, um, you know, fundamental analysis. And also, this is basically talking to um, some of the country's most successful investors to find out what the key ratios they, they use are, which inform their, their investment process. So, I mean, some, some of the things maybe aren't that surprising if you know the managers, but um, the explanations really um, give colour to what they do and also, a, I, I think, a massively valuable insight into how you can have readers can actually employ these techniques. Things like the PEG ratio, Mark Slater... Who um whose dad is Jim Slater? Who um who um he's 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 kind of you know take, taken Jim Slater's Zulu principles on and put them into a fund and has been using them for many years. And him talking about how how with, for a PE to work really well, you have to have the right growth uh, levels. You you change the uh, you change the peg ratio um depending on what type of company you're looking at. The importance of cash flow feeding into that. So all, all these really valuable insights, and so then so let's sort of, before uh-huh. we go on a peg ratio. It's the price to earnings growth. Yes. Yeah. So so if you look at a P in isolation, it can be quite high. For example, say let's say a, P, a PE price to earnings ratio is twenty five. Yeah. You might say that's quite high, but what you don't have any feel for is how fast the earnings are growing. E- exactly. That, so this this brings that into the equation. So if a company is growing its earnings faster than twenty five percent, a PE of twenty five is not too high. Well, yeah, that would give you a peg ratio of one, which rule of thumb peg ratio of one is um, is cheap peg ratio. Although um, Mark Slater, he gives an explanation of where the bands of um, the growth rate 
in his opinion, should be for the peg to be at its best and give you really valuable information on a stock. Well, he says less than one for large companies, FTSE 100, FTSE this is That's the level of the peg itself, but the actual EPS growth rate. EPS he, he, he also thinks... If um, the PE and growth rate are within the normal range, a PE between 8 and 20 and a growth rate between 10 and 25... That's it. Stephen's found it. So, yeah. So, so I mean, there's there's lots of, um, you know, extra stuff, I suppose, in, in, t- in, in the commentary, which is in there. And it's, it's a feature that I've really been wanting to do for a long time, because I think there's really fascinating insights to come from um, investment professionals, which um, readers, private investors can actually use to enhance what they're doing when they're looking for stocks and analysing stocks. I'm surprised they're telling you. Well, you know, otherwise, you know, this is their trade secrets. In, uh, in, you know, in well, some in some ways, it is their trade secrets. But also, um, most fund managers want people to know that they've got a really great process going on behind what they're doing, because that tends to be what drives out performance. It's um, a manager who not only has a good process but can stick to it. And in in a way, if you've got a good process, I mean, it'll fall in and out of fashion, and in and out of you know outperforming the market. But over the long term. It should breed out performance because essentially you're kind of maximising the amount of luck you're having with your stock picking. So um, your your chances are better if you've got a good process and you can stick to it. Indeed, and looking at I mean you've got the the performance data for the three funds you look at here. Yeah, uh, and they've all smashed yeah, the market. Yeah, no, no, really, they've, they've done time. they've done great. All the three managers: Jeremy Lang, Nick Train, and Mark Slater. Yeah, let's talk Nick Train because he's I mean he's Mr. Long Term. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've Buy had him, we've hold. had him at seminars. And we're we're off to do one in a in a yep, minute. Yeah, but uh, we've had Nick Train at seminars. He's a brilliant speaker, uh, really really compelling. But you know his story is a very simple one. Yes, you, you find really high quality stocks and you hold them. And and also that he he actually gives a valuation indicator that he uses in, in in this in this piece. But really, as far as he's concerned, valuation is a bit of a red herring with a lot of stocks. If you're a buy and hold investor, you're holding over many years and you're getting good dividends from um, from the companies you're holding. And the definition of good here would be um, recurring and growing rather than necessarily high at the outset. Then you are going to find the value of that holding kind of compounds essentially and drives incredible performance mm, if, you, if you if you if you can get your stock picking right Indeed, which you obviously can in fact that's the one of the themes that's going to be coming up tonight at the uh, the income seminar we're doing which is dividend growth yeah you know for me dividend growth rather than as you say the absolute level of dividend is, is pretty much one of the most important things that you can yeah i mean identify it's a, it's a key it's a key to um income investing in a way because it's a price driver as well as a driver of future dividend payments. So it's a price driver for the shares yes. as well as producing future dividend payments. So, if, you know, flat yield, if you're only after income, a high flat yield maybe is what you're after. But if you're concerned about the end value of your investment as well, then you're going to be wanting to build dividend growth in there. Indeed, and this is one of the reasons why I, I've always find it, I find it personally difficult to, to extract growth from income you know as, as a yeah. concept and we you know we talk about them separately and we've got two separate seminars we're having one growth <laughs> one income but they overlap so much and i think yeah dividend I mean, growth what nick train saying is is very much one of the the reasons why i i struggle to delineate uh yeah no, so easily. yeah yeah i mean it's just it's just tilting things one way or another indeed um okay let's uh, let's uh, move on from nick train and uh, quickly discuss uh, the last uh, manager you had jeremy lang um what's what's his uh What's his main, what do you call it? Investment essential. His, his investment essential. Why, why, are yeah. you, why are you referring to uh, a Fatboy Slim lyric? In, uh... I was just going to ask that. Actually, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, be... I have to read out the Fatboy Slim lyric to, um, in fact, I, again, I can't see it. Back I, but it's, once again. Back once old... again with the ill behaviour. <laughs> Jeremy Lang, 
um, is very interested in behavioral finance. Right. And the fact that people, <laughs> investors behave badly. All types of players in the market behave badly. He's back once again because he's set up a new fund management company. Not, you know, it's several it's years ago so, now. It's, but, so, you know, you know, it's so clever. It's completely lost. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably the best headline no we've had in ages. <laughs> Okay, but, anyway, so, yeah. But so he, he, lo- he looks at three different market players, all of which he believes behave irrationally for, under- for understandable reasons. So um, th- those are the management of companies. And he gives, the fundamental he gives us to look at is one to measure if management are acting in the best interest of shareholders, which is um, it's, it's basically a return on assets, but you use free cash flow rather than profit to calculate the return on asset. He also believes... Brokers, this is a long-term theme with Jeremy Lang, brokers don't act rationally because they're very slow to build in the improvements which are happening um, at companies because, I mean, they're very, you know, they're very hard to forecast and brokers obviously don't want to look stupid there on the side of caution. And when things are going well, they prefer to gradually improve forecasts yeah, rather than doing one big chunk and then look at an idiot if, um, the un, you know, the unforeseeable doesn't happen as they've said. Yeah. And then finally, in the market um, investors behave irrationally because they overreact to events. So um, we're all stupid. Yeah, and and and, and also if if, <laughs> if you if you study behavioural finance, at least you know we're all stupid. So yeah, you can enough. try and remedy your your own um, you know the the natural flaws that our brains have when it comes to investing. No, unfortunately, I can not, live with, I can live with being stupid. Yeah, nothing to be embarrassed <laughs> about. Just know, just yeah, just know know it as a fact, and then take it from there. I think. Well, yeah. good stuff, Algie. And obviously, there's a lot more in the future that. Uh, that uh, we haven't discussed here today. Yeah. So it's really, really fascinating to, to to get these insights into what the uh, the pros are up to. And I don't think we're a million miles away in, in terms of the way we think at the IC. And I'm going to uh, I'm going to big you up now, Algie, because you, yeah, you're also our tips editor. <laughs> and I don't know if the readers know this and the listeners know this. We're, Algie, you're also our tips editor. It's no accident that you do tips and stock screening because I think one in, one discipline very much informs the other. Uh, it gives us that that sort of context for, for valuations and, and, and the yeah. comparison across the market. Styles, yeah. And our tips of the year are flying. How are we doing, Algie? Okay, I, I, I just want to say before, before <laughs> I say this, I hope this isn't the, the moment of extreme hubris, <laughs> which marks the beginning of the end for the tips of the year. But jo- John, you did, you did find um, one of my spreadsheets open um, I did. earlier in the week and said oh I want this on the <laughs> on the podcast so anyway um we're out we're um we're our average total return on the tips of the year so far this year is 22.3 percent over which time the FTSE all share has produced a negative total return of 0.4 percent so in every single tip um is outperforming the market by you know, a good margin. I, I take the the one which is doing worst actually. Ironically, it had a takeover bid, um, but part of it's in paper, and the bidder's share price has come down. It's Pace, which is um, only delivering a total return of six point three percent. Rubbish. Oh my! <laughs> I know. It should. It, it should. Um, yeah, put its head in its hands in shame. Looking at Persimmon, um, which has delivered a total return so far of forty three percent. Blimey. Good and stuff. and per- Persimmon also, ironically, this was a company which on, on the day the tip came out, it fell 5% because a broker, I've forgotten who it was, said all the house builders are going to be absolutely rubbish this year. So, <laughs> so there you go. There's an example of your broker who broke there ranks and, and looks exactly. like a fool. Exactly. <laughs> see why they don't do it. Um, yeah. So uh, anyway, well done, Algie. We, I think when we well, discussed it's, it's this. It's not me. I mean, it's, this is very much a team thing. 
And, That's um, true. And, and, and like the outperformance, it has been going, it's almost five years of outperformance. And um, that's gone. That's gone on before I became tips editor. It's you know, it's an IC thing. The tips, of the yeah. the tips of the year. I don't. I don't think any one person can, you know, really make any claim on them. It's, it's well, I um, can because I'm the editor. But, well, there, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well done, John. No, no problem. No problem. That's the other thing I don't mind doing now. I'm 14. That's taking as much credit as I possibly can. That's the, even when it's I've not yet due. To learn that. Um, <laughs> I mean, we, we did approach this in a slightly different way. We thought about this, and we. We we kind of decided we were going to go down play a bit safe this year with the tips of the year. If I remember the conversations we had, what, what I was very disappointed with last year about the tips of the year was our tip on the Zambief, which basically undermined the outperformance, which was being delivered everywhere else. And I'm, what what I really thought was it, I in in um, selecting that share, and the Zytronic could have been the other one, which actually did very well. But Zambief had too many outside influences and it was just a it was too much of a punt really and i i kind of really felt i owed something you know significant to the failure by not just kind of thinking well what do we know is in our control you know where where, how can we keep things safe and that you know zambief is a punter stock at the time that you know there's a lot of valuation argument kind of stuff going for it but the currency had a big amount uh, you know a big effect on how things turned Mm. out and it was a risk that um I think it, with hindsight, you know, obviously at the time I, I you know, I selected that with um, from the ideas in front of me with, you know, the best intentions. Um, but I, with hindsight, I just think we took on too much risk with it. So very much, especially with the small cap tip record, I wanted to stay away from um, risks which were, you know, their risk outside our control with the record. But It's know, a currency group. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I exactly mean. Quite <laughs> saying, <laughs> currency plays risk, but it should, it's, it should be a beneficiary of um, wider, larger currency movements because yeah. people use it to hedge currency. Okay. Essentially. Well, then it should be in a good place. Hopefully, although yeah. it did just lose a mandate. Yeah, but then the shares bounce back. <laughs> but the shares bounce back a bit. Oh, no, it was a mandate they said was... Um, Probably temporary also. Okay, there you go. All right, thank you, Algie. Um, and, uh, thank you to the IC team for your wonderful stock picking uh, this year. Maybe uh, one thing we should mention just before we go is the um, deal, uh, the mooted deal, anyway, between Sad Miller oh, gotcha. and um, Anheuser Bush in Bev, if that's how you say all yep. of it. Um, yeah, just it was such a big deal. Um, yesterday, um, sorry, I neglected to say it in the news section when you asked what right. was going on. Um, SAB rose about 20% yesterday. Um, there are various, I've got some broken notes here in front of me. People are saying could be a bid up to even the highest figure is £45 per SAB Miller share. I think they closed yesterday at about £39, if I remember rightly. So there, there's potential for a big deal there in the, in the brewing market. Apparently, um, AB InBev has to make an offer on the 14th of October. So there's a quite a short timeline for us to find out whether the biggest brewer is about to take over the second biggest brewer. It's about all that's left in the industry. I mean, all the small brewers have, have pretty much been snapped up. There's one or two, but I think there's there's you know family stakes in them. And it's, you know, yeah, this, this was the only deal really that could could happen. I think but so. It's, it's so big. You imagine you can't. I can't imagine antitrust will not get involved in this kind of thing. Well, I mean, a lot of the brokers kind of say that there'll be um, an easy chance of... Um, I think SAB Miller has a bottling agreement with Coca-Cola and yeah. Anheuser has a bottling agreement with Pepsi, so one of those might have to go. Um, SAB also has lots of um, joint ventures in the US and China, so those might have to go. Obviously, this is all speculation and with, with brokers sort of putting the two companies together but the, the 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 interesting thing about those two companies is they actually have a complement quite a complementary mm. portfolio geographically which is one of the reasons why people have always got excited about this merger because you know SAB is obviously very strong in Africa where AB and Bev doesn't have all that much 
Um, AB InBev is very strong in South America, yep. um, or certain South American com- countries where SAB isn't so strong. So th- apart from China and the US, which are admittedly very large markets, they they, they have quite complementary portfolios. So I think one of the reasons why people have always thought this this, this merger might work is that it's re- although there are massive antitrust issues, they are resolvable. So the JV that SAB has in the states with Coors, it could just sell its stake to Coors. Yeah. Um, the I mean the, the the bigger question is is whether the holders of SAB shares want to sell up, and and those are above all Altria, um, the, the the US Tobacco Group, and the, the Santa Domingo family, which um, was behind a big. Brewer, the, the owner of the Corona brand, which SAB bought mm. um, a few years ago, and so it ended up being a big shareholder in SAB. And uh, I, I, it really depends what price they're willing to be taken out at, and whether yeah. ABI wants to offer it. I, I mean, interestingly, um, Philip Gorham, an analyst at uh, Morningstar, said the biggest barrier actually had been valuation. But um, SAB is so very much geared into emerging markets that its stock has fallen quite significantly with emerging market indices. Right. Um, this yeah, is, it, was this never che- it was never cheap in the old. I mean, no, yeah, and the, this is the opportunity. This is the opportunity I think that IB, ABI has mm. seen. It's like ah, uh, when people are negative emerging markets, this is the time to get SAB. So yeah, I think it's chosen its time very, uh, very purposefully. Good for them. Very sensible. I'd imagine the pint, price of a pint of beer might go up after this. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, apologies for uh, skipping that one earlier. Um, what else have we got in the magazine? Um, plenty in the personal finance and funds section, which uh, no doubt they will talk about on their podcast tomorrow. Um, Algae, another thing in the magazine, he's uh, f- uh, top small cap growth shares uh, using a, a Zweig screen. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Um, Me neither. No. Um, uh, it is a top screen. <laughs> it is a top screen. Uh, sector focus on uh, in the industrial engineering sector, uh, basically in the wake of uh, Buffett's purchase uh, over in the US, uh, which suggests there's some value there. Lots and lots in the comments section. Ian Smith introduced a new um, measure to the banking uh, tables in our company section this week, explaining the thinking behind that. And uh, Chris Dillo, interestingly, looks at the threat of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and uh, what that could mean for UK investors. Nothing much, I think, is the conclusion. Chris Dello, <laughs> who describes himself on his Twitter feed as a Marxist. He is a Marxist. He's a Marxist economist. <laughs> um, the one and only, and he's ours. Oh, no, he's not. Gianni, Var- Var- what's the Greek? Yeah, oh, very Varoufakis. Very <laughs> he's a Marxist economist. Maybe they should start the Marxist Economist Club. Um, anyway, okay, thank you very much for, uh, for listening. Uh, thank you to everyone here, uh, Bradley, Stephen, and uh, Algie and Dom over there. Um, so, yeah, uh, pick magazine up uh, in all good news agents, £4.50, and uh, we will chat again next week when I am definitely here. Okay, see you later. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 